Let's open the Word of God this morning to Psalm 58. Psalm 58. We enter into the Divine Library and take the book of Psalms off the shelf, one of the 66 books our blessed Father in Heaven has given us. And it speaks to us from the pen of David by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Number 63. Trait number 63. Righteous indignation against wicked. Righteous indignation against wicked. The Bible describes a conflict that the world doesn't give too much attention to, and yet it speaks of it often, and that is between the righteous and the wicked. The wicked hate the righteous, and the righteous hate the wicked. And that mutual hatred isn't preached in very many pulpits, at all today, but it's true and it's found in the Word of God. Solomon spoke of it in the Proverbs. David's going to speak of it, and that's the point we are covering right here. Righteous indignation against wicked. David had a passion for God. David loved the Lord, and he wanted to exalt Him and set Him up, follow Him, obey Him, worship Him, and build a temple for His name. But he had also an equal and opposite passion against God's enemies. And so if you have passion toward God, you're going to have passion against God's enemies. That should be obvious to you. And it should be obvious to every one of us. When we look at Psalm 58, and I can't read the whole thing, it's one of the imprecatory psalms of the Bible. Imprecatory is a list of psalms, and there's about 25 of them or so, where David writes curses from God upon the wicked. And this is one of them. And so it says things like this. Verse 6. Break their teeth, O God. Now that's the sweet psalmist of Israel writing, as he's called in 2 Samuel 23. Break their teeth, O God, in their mouth. Break out the great teeth of the young lions, O Lord. Let them melt away as waters which run continually. When he bendeth his bow to shoot his arrows, let them be as cut in pieces. As a snail which melteth, let every one of them pass away. Like the untimely birth of a woman, that they may not see the sun. And so on. This is an imprecatory, meaning bringing a curse upon the wicked. And so the point that we want to go after right now, the trait, is trait number 63. David had righteous indignation against wicked men. He blasted the wicked man Doeg. If you come back a few pages to 52, Psalm 52 is one of the imprecatory psalms against Doeg, the Edomite, who killed all the priests of God at Nob when Abiathar had helped David at the tabernacle by giving him the showbread to eat and also giving him Goliath's sword. And so it starts out, Why boastest thou thyself in mischief, O mighty man? Because he was one of Saul's mighty men, the keeper of all his herds. The goodness of God endureth continually in spite of you. Thy tongue deviseth mischiefs, Like a sharp razor, working deceitfully, thou lovest evil more than good, and lying, rather than to speak righteousness. 
And so God shall likewise destroy thee forever in verse 5. He shall take thee away and pluck thee out of thy dwelling place and root thee out of the land of the living. Now remember, David said, I had fainted unless I had believed I was going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. But he says, God's going to root you out of the land of the living. And this is the conflict. And it's been there since Cain and Abel. It's always going to be there until the Prince of Peace comes and he's going to make peace by destroying all his enemies. And so we want to have the righteous indignation against the wicked that David had. By the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of inspiration, in Psalm 69 and in Psalm 109, we have David writing against Judas Iscariot. And those words are incredibly harsh and severe, like the first 20 verses of Psalm 109. Why don't you turn there? We'll just take a moment. Psalm 109 is the, most, the lengthiest passage against Judas Iscariot. For you to know that it's Judas Iscariot, you can see it in verse 8. Psalm 109, 8, because these words are quoted in Acts chapter 1, when Peter led a meeting of the apostles to replace Judas. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. That's Judas. Were his days few? Yes, they were, cut off in the prime of life. Verse 9, this is, this is David by the inspiration of God. This is how we learn God's heart. David was a man after God's heart. This is God despising the wicked. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Let the extortioner catch all that he hath and let the strangers spoil his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy unto him. Neither let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off. And in the generation following, let their names be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered with the Lord. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Because that he remembered not to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man that he might even slay the broken in heart, and so forth, and so on. This is the word of the Lord. If you don't like this word, then you don't like the Lord of heaven. If you don't like this description and these curses brought upon the wicked, then you don't like the God of the Bible. We love the God of the Bible. I love the Lord just as he is. I couldn't care what men think about him, say about him, or have tried to describe about him, this is the Lord God I can worship. Amen. He hates his enemies, he hates the wicked, and he'll destroy them, and he utters curses against them, even from the pen of the sweet psalmist of Israel. He couldn't stand the thought of them wicked men being in his house, in his kingdom, or in his church, as we've learned from Psalm 101, which I hope you'll remember. Look at Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Many of you know Psalm 1 well. It draws a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Verses 1 through 3 are about the righteous. Verse 4, the ungodly are not so. What I've just written, David is saying, in the first three verses, 
about this man that separates himself from the wicked in verse 1. He delights in God's word in verse 2. He is going to prosper by God's blessing in verse 3. Those descriptions that I have written about the righteous man, the ungodly are not so, verse 4. They're like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. God is going to judge them. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Psalm 5 and verse 5. Verse 6, back to the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous. And that just isn't bare knowledge of the way of the righteous. That is, an, that is affectionate awareness and blessing upon the way of the righteous. But the way of the ungodly shall perish. It's not that God didn't know about their way versus knowing the way of the righteous. It's that the way of the ungodly shall perish and the way, of the, the way of the ungodly shall perish and the way of the godly shall be favored and blessed. This contrast is what David drew. And it's what the Bible shows us from Genesis chapter 4 all the way to the last chapter of the Bible. The war and the conflict that will never end between the righteous and the wicked. So we don't play games and talk and make things. Things don't come out of this pulpit. Words don't come out of this pulpit about the wonderful spirit of man. Okay, there's a wicked spirit in the world, and they would kill us again if it weren't for God preserving our lives and, and for the nation that he's given us that have laws against it. There are nations in the world where there are not laws against it, and they do take the lives of the righteous. The Psalms describe the wicked and God's judgment terribly. I've just shown you knockout teeth, but that just isn't Psalm 58. It's also in Psalm 3. Let me give you a short list of some of these jewels from God's Word. Not everyone would call them jewels, but here's a list. Knock out teeth. Break the arm. Their cup is snares, fire, and brimstone. A snail melting. A miscarriage. You just heard both of those from Psalm 58. Barking like dogs and belching. God laughing at them over and over. Chaff or stubble before the wind. The angel of the Lord chasing them. Take them away in wrath with a tornado while they're still alive. Fire burning them up like burning up wood. Dipping feet in their blood. Dashing babies' brains out against stones. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. Amen. I'm not sick. I'm not twisted. I'm not perverted. This is the word of the Lord. It's always been in the Bible. It's always been there. Those words have been read and sung for 3,000 years because David wrote them in 1000 BC. This is the God of the Bible, and we worship him. A God that loves his enemies as much as he loves his children is no God of mine. I don't want to know another thing about him. It is so disgusting and revolting to think that his love is equal toward the wicked as it is toward the righteous, that his love is the same toward those in hell as those in heaven is revolting. His love is special. His love does something. His love wins the objects of his love. His love saves those that he wants to save. And he saves every single one of them without losing one. For those that think the language that I just shared with you from the Bible is too cruel, 
too harsh, totally unnecessary to come out of a pulpit, think again. God judged the human race of a hundred billion souls with three deaths for one little sin. That's an estimate. Since the creation of Adam and Eve, there have been a hundred billion souls. There's seven and a half billion on earth right now. Shouldn't be too hard to extrapolate that even though when I was a child there was only three billion on earth, that there have been about a hundred billion since the creation of the world. Just an estimate. Now they get to die three deaths. A spiritual death, a physical death, and an eternal death. Three deaths times a hundred billion is 300 billion deaths. And they are serious deaths. When you are around a loved one and watch their body decay and corrupt and die and the last breath is taken and they rot and they're clay again and they stink so quickly, the corruption of physical death, spiritual death, unable, unwilling, revolting, rebelling against anything that is godly or from God. That's terrible. Eternal death is the lake of fire. 300 billion for one little. That's my God. That's my God. He's the God of the Bible. I don't know of any other. I wouldn't want to meet any other. I don't care about your Allah. I don't care about Vishnu and I don't care about the Great Spirit. I can do better than smoke myself in a teepee all winter with buffalo chips. I can do better than Ramadan. I can do better than throw stones to the devil over there in Mecca and stampede and kill a bunch of Muslims because they're so foolish to gather together in millions and stampede each other because as they chase the devil and throw stones at him. The devil's never been moved by stones except one stone. And you know his name. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is the word of the Lord. I'm not preaching this morning about the terribleness of God. I'm preaching about a trait of David. What made David special? He knew God. He was the man after God's heart, and this is how he expressed himself. This is how God expresses himself, because these expressions are by inspiration of God and preserved in our King James Bible, and all men knew about them until this effeminate generation, when they get to go to Lockwood uh, or Saddleback or other churches and just hear a bunch of platitudes from some grinning Cheshire cat instead of hearing the word of God preached. This is the truth of God's word. David understood it. We should understand it. If you think it's just too cruel, harsh, and totally unnecessary, you need to think about the lake of fire prepared for the devil where eternal torment will be issued against most of mankind. And it's called a lake of fire. We don't like the thought of drowning And if I were to get you even close to drowning, the physical reaction of your body and mind is absolutely extreme and severe. But if I get you near fire, the reaction of your body is just about the same. If I apply fire to a fingertip, a single fingertip for one second, there's a violent reaction on your part. Now you just try to imagine a lake of fire. That's God's choice of terminology. I didn't make it up. But David knew about it. The Bible knows about it. And so think about that when you think that this is just a little too harsh and it's not realistic nor accurate portrayal of the God of the Bible or a man after his own heart. It is indeed. Think about the flood. Don't have time. I've done it before. Remember? 
That's something knocking up against the ark. Think about the flood. Think about the Tower of Babel. Think about what God did to Egypt. Think about the land of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. They're called imprecatory psalms, and there's about 25 to 30 of them. And uh, I'll provide the list. It'll be in the outline. It's already there. Is it hard for you to exclude rebels and turn them over to Satan? It shouldn't be. 1 Corinthians 5 says they, the Corinthians should have been mourning that they hadn't done it yet. Not that they, that they shouldn't have mourned because they had to do it. Why? Somebody wants to be an enemy of God, an enemy of his church, an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ, an enemy of his truth? Turn them over to Satan. Get them out of here. Just like David would say. Just like David would say about Doeg the Edomite. Get them out of here. Is it hard for you to hate men like Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking? They're two idiots that have set their mouths against the Most High God. If we lived in a different age, I hope there would be some Davids among us that would go cut their ugly heads off. But we don't live in that age. So we just let them go their merry way, spouting their filthy, foolish nonsense while they slobber on themselves, especially Stephen. This is the word of the Lord. Trait number 63, David had righteous indignation against Wicked. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. I hate them with a perfect hatred. Amen. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Those all verses all go together. Because there was no wicked way in David. Right. He was thinking correctly, and he was speaking correctly. The Lord's put a hedge about us. And he protects us with the angel of the Lord. They are our enemies. They hate us. And they would destroy us if they could. Everything is a hate crime today when there is any hatred toward them. Their hatred toward us is never a hate crime. That's okay. Our Lord has enough for all of us. And we're going to follow in his way. Number 64. Trait number 64. Managed severe spiritual trials. Managed severe spiritual trials. Even the best of men can be subject to severe trials of their flesh and spirit. Think about Job. Job's one of the best men described in the Bible. He's one of the five great men of God, given to us by Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Yet, look at the severe trials of his flesh and his spirit. He was battered from every side. He ended up well in the end, and the Bible tells us to remember the end of Job. It tells us that in James chapter 5, that he got double for all that he lost. But Job didn't manage his severe spiritual trials as well as David did. Elihu had to come along and correct Job, and Elihu's anger was kindled at Job and his three friends for the errors they made. God turned David over to Satan, just like he turned Job over to Satan, and Peter over to Satan. He turned David over to Satan when he numbered Israel. The Bible tells us that in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1. David did not hold this against God, and God did not hold this duress against David. David managed severe spiritual trials. When we think about severe spiritual trials, we may say, not if, but when are they going to come? Trials will come. 
Trials are what make us better. Trials are the chastening hand and the furnace of affliction of the Lord to refine our metals so that we might increase in purity for his use. So they come, but how well do you manage them? How do you bear up under them? Do you still worship God or do you get destroyed and you start talking against God? I can't believe he's doing this against me. Job lost control of his mouth. And so Elihu had to come along and tell him, God is greater than man, and if you don't get over your sin and justifying wicked men in the way you're conducting yourself, God's going to cut you off, Job. That's in the book of Job, chapter 36. For 10 to 15 years of David's life, between his anointing by Samuel there in Bethlehem and taking the throne of Israel, he suffered greatly by King Saul. About 15 years. He was far from God's house at times, which was a very great grief to such a pious man as David, who loved being in God's house. There were terrible things that happened to him. His soul was cast down at times by terrible circumstances and the melancholy spirit that he had. But we've dealt with that earlier. He was cast down but not destroyed. You should note how many psalms begin with him being discouraged and wondering, had the Lord cast him off? But then by the time he gets to the end, he is renewed in his faith and encouraged in his hope. And he puts his trust in the Lord again. I had fainted. I didn't faint, but I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so David didn't. He encouraged himself in the Lord. The most terrible moment we know is there in 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6 when he crests the hill and sees the little village of the Philistines named Ziklag where he lived with his wives and children and where his men lived with him. And when he crested that hill after a very tiresome trip, it was burned to the ground because the Amalekites had come and taken everything that he had and everything that his men had captive, but he encouraged himself in the Lord. He managed severe spiritual trials, and that is a great example for us, and we want to follow it. Like Paul wrote, he was cast down, but not destroyed. He didn't quit. Most Christians quit with far less in the way of trouble than he had. And see, you don't have to say, I hate God, to quit. You don't have to say, I love the devil, to quit. All you have to do is stop being cheerful and thankful and praising God in his house with zeal and bearing fruit in your life. You've quit. You're a foolish whirling in the house of God. Worrying about all the junk in your life, like your health, like your wealth, like your job, like your children, like your house, like our government. Worrying about that junk, you've quit. Because none of that stuff matters in comparison to God and his worship. You've quit. You don't have to say you hate God. David never got there. Solomon quit. The only severe trial he had was his harem. He couldn't handle his harem. David could handle his wisdom, his, his wives, and David could handle evil circumstances as well. He practiced his own advice that he gave us in Psalm 27. Lord, help us to do that. His children were a massive disappointment. Do you want to go through the list of his children? But his full hope was in Jesus Christ, his son. Right. Right. 
Those other sons didn't disturb him very much. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, this is all my salvation. And all my desire, all my desire, all my desire, all my desire, although he make it not to grow. It doesn't include my whole family tree, David said, but it's all my desire, it's all my salvation to know that from me is going to come the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is my salvation. That's the everlasting covenant that counts. Now that's about as dear of a relationship as you can have, your children. His children were a massive disappointment. What A name do you want to start with? Amnon? Adonijah? Absalom? Who do you want to think about? But his full hope was in Jesus Christ, his son. Right. we got to keep our priorities where they're supposed to be. Didn't his son, Jesus Christ, come along and say, if you don't hate son and daughter, yep. children, brother, sister, mother, father, houses and lands, if you don't hate, hate is the word chosen by Jesus Christ, if you don't hate those things, in comparison to your love of me, you cannot be my disciple. That is how we order our priorities. And the Lord has made it very clear to us, our priorities. Thou shalt love, we heard this morning from Psalm 116, is the first commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with how much of your heart? How much of your soul? How much of your mind? How much of your strength? All of it. And when you let... It bleed in a different direction. You're foolish and wicked. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. There are not mixed emotions with those who love Christ. Yes, they have compassion, some feelings, some loss, some hurt, some little hole. But the overwhelming love they have for Jesus Christ transcends all of that. And so they do not quit. They don't get discouraged. They don't curse God. I can't believe he did this. What are you talking about? He should do it to all of us. He should send all of us to hell. Lord, give us the proper balance. At the same time, we have Romans 9 and we have Romans 10, where Paul said that Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And those were enemies of the gospel. They're Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I could wish myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. But it can never discourage us from the worship of God and from being sold out for Him. It can't pull us down because he is pulling us up, and he is far greater than any other relationship he's given us. Right. Life does not need to be a bowl of cherries like Joel Osteen and others want to present to be great in God's sight. It's how we respond to negative events that shows our greatness in God's sight, and David did it. Number 65, he was generally happy. David was a happy man. He was generally happy. 
Number 65, the trait number 65 of David. The Psalms that describe melancholy sadness are meaningful by the fact of his general happiness. Ordinarily, David's dancing, running around, shouting praise, rejoicing, being glad in heart, all the words about boasting in God and triumph and gladness and sweetness and meditation of him shall be sweet. Who do they come from? They come from David. And so when you, when you come upon a psalm where he's crying about God forsaking him forever and things like that, that's an exception, and it weighs more with us because this is the man that is ordinarily happy and he's being pulled down by circumstances temporarily, but look at how he speaks to himself. Self, why art thou cast down? Hope thou in God, who shall yet be the help and the hope of thy countenance. He was generally happy. Some people are generally morose. They are incredible. They can never see good in anything. Or some people are so sober, they think they're being sober. They show little joyful pleasure for life. You too sober to dance? In a public assembly? Let me get my keys out of my pocket. Just kidding. We don't want to be too sober. Right. I preach gravity. I preach sobriety. Life is serious. Life is short. However, there's too many pleasures. There's rivers of pleasures in heaven. There's rivers of pleasures on earth. And we should be enjoying them and drinking from them. The Bible tells us how. David's son Solomon wrote and told us how in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 about where a job fits in and where wine fits in and food fits in and a wife fits in. And all these things are to come together to put a smile on our face and joy in our heart, a bounce in our step, and to enjoy life. The goodness of God in the land of the living. Some people can't see it. And so they live their lives miserably, then they die. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Death is coming, so do you know what that means? Hold on. Death is coming, so we should live like we are mostly dead already? Or should we be? A living dog is better than a dead lion, so this poodle is going to... If you knew what I just said, you would appreciate the point being made. This poodle is going to dance on his rear legs. And so we should be happy. He was generally happy. Oh, when we're happy, we please the Lord. When we please the Lord, he makes us happy. David wrote about happiness in life with God's blessings. You're right there at Psalm 1. Look at Psalm 4. Psalm 4 and verse 7. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. The wicked get excited when they get a huge blessing. This would be an annual blessing of harvest. This would be one time out of the year when you got the big paycheck. Now, when you've got to wait a whole year for a paycheck, and it's a big one, because it says here, their corn and their wine increased. That means they had a positive number on their financial statement compared to the previous year. They were happy and glad. And David said, thou hast put gladness in my heart, and I need the four-letter word there. More. Okay. He was generally happy. How about 127.5? Psalm 127. Oh, life is short. 
But life is good. Amen. You say, but I'm not healthy. I'm not wealthy. My kids are terrible. You know, I don't like our president. All this bad stuff. Oh, we have a king of glory that we heard about from Brother Jim. And we love the Lord. And we heard, I think, somewhere around 20 reasons why we ought to love the Lord. Right. Come on. Forget all the negative stuff. Rejoice in the positive things the Lord has done for us. They so far exceed the negative things. Psalm 127.5, Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with enemies in the gate. This is a psalm of blessing about a family. Psalm 128, the next one, verse 2, For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands, happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. What kind of a man gets the blessing of verse 2? He's in verse 1. Blessed is every one that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. Right. To fear God and to walk in his ways and to keep his terrible commandments, what is the effect on a man? Does it turn them into a monk wandering around some monastery or some nun in a convent? Is that what it turns men into when they fear God and they keep his commandments? His commandments are not grievous. We're told in 1 John chapter 5, the effect is in verse 2. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands, because God will protect your assets. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Yes, yes, and yes. So David was generally happy. He was generally happy. David wrote about the necessary conditions of purity and prosperity for it. Psalm 144. What he wanted the church of God to look like. What, storehouses full. Child, children dancing in the streets. Polished cornerstones for daughters. Sons grown up in their youth. He described it in glowing terms of happiness. And he said, happy is the people that is in such a case. Yea, happy is the people whose God is the Lord Jehovah. Amen. Now, this is where many can't understand. Was it in this sermon that I went over David's righteous indignation with the wicked? Was it this sermon I talked about breaking out teeth and men melting like snails on a hot sidewalk? Was it this sermon? You've got to be kidding me. Am I speaking out of both sides of my mouth? I am speaking out of one mouth directly from the Word of God that that same God treats the wicked one way, but He treats the righteous a different way. Amen. And he treats the wicked well enough that it's going to be a curse on them in the great day of judgment because he sent his rain and his sunshine and fruitful seasons and food in their bellies and an increase in their corn and wine on them, but they did not give him the glory for it. Right. He sends it to us and he brings no sorrow with it. The book of Proverbs teaches us he puts something inside us at our heart level, not just our belly level. And when you get the two of those together, now that's called a fattened calf feast with the Lord. Right. You, and he does both. Amen. Because we can have a fatted calf feast with, I was going to say popcorn, but that just wouldn't cut it right now. Uh, we can do it with anything. He was generally happy. How do you think we're supposed to read Psalm 103? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, 
Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. Are you kidding? How do you say that song? When you're in the car and you think of Psalm 103, or you're in the shower and you think of Psalm 103, or you're opening the pages of the Bible, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. David wrote it. If you think gravity and sobriety are chief traits of life, you miss David's happiness. If you are too busy and stressed to be happy, you know only a fraction of his burdens. You don't have any burdens compared to David. David had the joy all believers should have, and he exhorted them all to it. Look at Psalm 5. Psalm 5. I think Psalm 5 is the one that has God hates all workers of iniquity in it. Do you think it has happiness in the same psalm? Could that be possible? Psalm 5, 5. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. There it is. It's in Psalm 5. But I want verse 11 this time. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Those that put their trust in God, are they different than the ones in verse 5? Very different. They're the opposite of the ones in verse 5. The ones in verse 5 are called foolish and the workers of iniquity. The ones in verse 11 are let those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. How's that? Both in Psalm 5. This is the God of the Bible. He's not known in very many places today. But this is the God of the Bible. And we can see the difference and we can rightly divide it because verse 5 is describing what God's actions and attitude toward the foolish and the workers of iniquity and verse 11 toward his children that put their trust in him. David had difficulties comparable to Jacob or worse, but he didn't whine as badly. For those of you that have read enough of the book of Genesis, you know that Jacob, when he gave a summary of his life to Pharaoh, it wasn't exactly, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Number 65. That was number 65. Number 66. Trait number 66. Understood God's ethical wisdom. Number 66. Understood God's ethical wisdom. What a broad man. What a broad man. The sweet psalmist of Israel, righteously indignant, happy, yet wise. Very wise. Understood God's ethical wisdom. Wisdom is not black and white to be learned by rote and applied like trained parrots. Wisdom is gray by taking a unique combination of principles for each unique case. Been over that before, don't have time to belabor it. All you need to do is go online to our website and look up Christian ethics and you'll find several PowerPoint presentations that you can go through the slides and be reminded of what ethical wisdom is taught in the Bible. We don't judge by appearance, because if we judge by appearance, you'll miss righteous judgment. Righteous judgment can't just look at what appears on the surface. It's got to look and think beneath the surface to find out what's really taking place. The Pharisees condemned Jesus and the apostles by their total lack of such wisdom. But David had it. Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount against the Pharisees' abuse of truth and their abuse of wisdom. 
Ye have heard that it hath been said of them of old time, such and such. But I say unto you, Ye have heard by them of old time, but I say unto you. When Jesus said, Ye have heard by them of old time, he wasn't referring to Moses and the prophets. He was referring to the rabbinical tradition of the elders of Israel. And he was correcting it over and over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew chapters 5 through 7. David ate the showbread. And Jesus brought up David eating the showbread as an example of wisdom in Matthew chapter 12 and Mark chapter 2. He ate the showbread. It wasn't lawful for him to eat the showbread, but he knew he could eat the showbread as an exception in his situation. How did he know that? Because he understood ethical wisdom. May God give us such ethical wisdom to know what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. He knew, like the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, like Rahab, like Jehu, and others, when to lie. David has more lives, lies ascribed to him of any righteous man in the Bible. Because he knew there was a time to do it to preserve life. And no, one, no parent should be worried about what I'm saying right now if you spend any time at all with your children to explain to them that answering you is never a justifiable case for it. David understood it to preserve life. And so when he came to about, you know, before he ate the showbread, he lied. Now, it'd be scary enough to eat the showbread if he had told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. But if you had just told a lie and then you cut the showbread and put a little peanut butter on it and ate it, wouldn't you be twice as scared? He comes to Abiathar, the priest. The priest says, David, what are you here for? I'm on business from the king. Right. You know, Saul's chasing him. I'm on business from the king. Well, what can I do for you? I'd like to eat the showbread. After all, we are somewhat holy. He just lied. Because he understood ethical wisdom. He was trying to save Abiathar's life by telling him that he was on the king's business while he preserved his life and kept on running. Abiathar, his whole family tree was wiped out by Doeg the Edomite because there was another principle in play that was greater. And the principle that was in play was Eli was not a strict and severe father. And because Eli was not a strict and severe father, God had said he would destroy his family tree and the priests at Nob were Eli's family tree. And so though David made an effort to preserve the lives of the priests by lying about his reason for being there and why they should help him since he was on the king's business, all those priests were killed by Doeg the Edomite. That did not excuse Doeg the Edomite. Thus we have Psalm 52. That is ethical wisdom. God's promise against Eli being fulfilled, yet David writing Psalm 52 against Doeg the Edomite. Are you all with me on, on that? You know, as a, little, as a little boy, I was taught about Samuel. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. About little Samuel, but I was, you know, I never got all the details of what exactly was taking place that night when the Lord came and spoke to Samuel. And then in the morning, Eli said, God, do so to thee, and more so also if you don't tell me what God said to you last night. Now lay it on me. And he got to hear that God was going to wipe out his family tree 
because he did not violently stop his sons from their ungodliness. I'm not going to take you through all the examples. Do you remember him scrabbling on the wall? Do you remember David being in the court of Achish? And all of a sudden he's getting the impression that uh, this is not going well right now. They're remembering that I did kill Goliath. That is not a good thing. So he starts slobbering and he goes over to a wall and starts scratching on it like he's insane. And he writes a psalm about it because he's praying for the Lord to bless his efforts at deceiving Achish and the Lord blessed the efforts at deceiving Achish, and Achish became his best friend among the Philistines. Many examples like that. His ethical wisdom of telling Solomon to take care of Joab, his ethical wisdom of telling Solomon to take care of Shimei, and so forth. That was number 66. Understood God's ethical wisdom. So much more could be said. We don't need to. Let's go to number 67. Diligently sought first love. Diligently sought first love. We want to turn to Psalm 51, but the four words for trait number 67, diligently sought first love. David was not content with merely loving, liking, being made right, fellowship restored with God. There was more, and he wanted it. He diligently sought first love. And that's what that church at Ephesus needed to do in Revelation chapter 2. It's what the church of Laodicea needed to do in Revelation chapter 3. But let's turn to Psalm 51, which is the great psalm of confession by David for his adultery and murder in the case of Bathsheba and her husband Uriah the Hittite. Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. I've just picked those three verses. David does not pray here. Lord, don't kill me. Lord, don't kill me. Please don't kill me. No, mommy, no, mommy. It hurts, it hurts, it hurts. Ever heard that from a child as you walk toward them with the instrument of love? Right. No, mommy, no, mommy. You know, all they care about is they don't want to feel the pain. David, David just wanted to get way past all of that. Wait, he, it wasn't even, that's not even in here. It's a lack of fellowship and wanting to have it restored to be full of joy again about his salvation, to have the Holy Spirit with him with a clean heart and a new spirit and a right spirit that he'd always had toward God, to be excited and worshiping God again, full bore, wide open, pedals to the metal. And so we have those words. Let me read them to you again, 10 through 12. These are wonderful. This is David, diligently sought first love. Get me back to where I was. Renew, restore. Look at verse 12, restore. But we'll start at 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew. Make it new again, a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. I remember it, and uphold me with thy free spirit. The three things that Jesus Christ told the church at Ephesus were to remember from whence thou art fallen, repent, and do the first works. This is David doing it in the Old Testament. 
He remembered from whence he was fallen, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. He's repenting, and he is going to go do the first works. Look at verse, where do you want? Verse 13, then will I teach transgressors thy ways. Those are the first works. When you are converted, you want to share your conversion with someone else. Look at verse 19, then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. He wants to get back into full-blown worship of the Lord. He diligently sought first love. Psalm 42. Psalm 42. This is the psalm where he speaks to himself, along with the next psalm, Psalm 43. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? In Psalm 42, he is remembering how it used to be, and he wants it restored. Look at how he describes it in verse 4. When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. What did Jesus tell the church at Ephesus? Remember from whence thou art fallen. When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. For I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God, with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Get back and do the first works. God will still be the joy of your countenance, soul. But notice, diligently sought first love. And that shouldn't, this point shouldn't surprise us. I just like some of the statements that are made here that match up so well with what Jesus Christ said about restoring first love in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5. I remember. He remembered when he was worshiping with the voice of joy and praise, keeping an assembly of the church in verse 4, and he wants it back. And he tells himself that he'll get it back. And he, he didn't faint. He just was discouraged and cast down. He said, I, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Look at Psalm 77. Psalm 77. Diligently sought first love. Verse 6. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. And I said, This is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. And then he goes on to describe, I will remember verse 11, I will meditate verse 12, and so on and so forth. He's thinking about Moses and Aaron in verse 20. God's way is in the sea in verse 19. He restores himself because he wants his first love back for the Lord. I will love thee, are the first few words of Psalm 18. This morning you heard the first few words of Psalm 116, I love the Lord. I will love thee, O Lord, in Psalm 18, because he's committing, I will maintain my love of thee. I will not become perfunctory. I will not go through the motions. I will not just be a Sunday Christian. I will just not be a so-so Christian. I will be sold out towards you, Lord. 
And so he diligently sought his first love. He still loved God and sought to advance his kingdom right up to his death. Those words about exceeding magnificent, and this palace is not for man but for God, those were at the very end of his life. He exhorted the princes of Israel to give and to help his young, tender son Solomon to finish that building project. He kept his first love all the way. The church of Ephesus and most churches are not like David by this rule. And most men are not like David by this rule. They lose their first love. They lose their great love. And they don't pursue it with the aggressiveness and diligence that David did. He was always about the service of God, the worship of God, the love of God, and that's the way that we should be. May the Lord bless us to be that way. Today, we have learned, number 63, David had righteous indignation against the wicked. Seeking his first love for God would mean that he has righteous, that means holy, acceptable enmity against wicked men. He hated them with perfect hatred, he said. That was number 63. Number 64, he managed severe spiritual trials by putting his trust in the Lord, remembering the Lord's goodness, remembering the Lord's goodness to him in the past, remembering the Lord's goodness to other men, and did not quit or become defeated. Number 65, he was generally happy. He enjoyed his relationship with the Lord and the Lord's blessings under the sun in the land of the living. Number 66, he understood God's ethical wisdom. So while the man had passion against the enemies of God, passion for God, he yet had wisdom that guarded his passion at all times, lest his passion would cause him to do something that he shouldn't do. He was ethically wise. What a combination. Lord, give us such a combination. Amen. And number 67, he diligently sought his first love, and that's what we ought to do, and that's what we'll attempt to do in our second assembly as we prepare to come to the Lord's table and remember his love for us in sending his son to die for us. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.